Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. This is the podcast that tells the stories of women with unusual, interesting, and inspiring careers. And if you subscribe in iTunes or wherever you normally get your podcasts, you'll find a host of wonderful women talking to little old me about their lives, their motivations, their successes and failures, and what they've learned. Speaking of which, I was really nervous about putting out last week's episode, but I've been blown away by the number of lovely messages from people about the show, particularly from people who actually know me, including some members of my own family. Such a treat. As always, hit me up at smashingtheceiling at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. And thank you to those of you who did. I mentioned at the end of last week that it was really important to me as part of this project to use the voice that I have to showcase the careers of a really diverse range of women. Today's guest is absolutely not included for any sort of tokenism or to dig a box. In fact, I positively despise that sort of diversity. She's here because her story is quite phenomenal and she has a really important voice that ought to be heard. As a young woman, Lisa Cox played national level volleyball. She flew through two degrees in media and communications and was rapidly forging a hugely successful career as a copywriter in the advertising industry in Australia, traveling extensively and enjoying the high life in her early 20s. That is until in 2005, when she suffered a massive brain hemorrhage in Melbourne Airport, which changed her life irrevocably. After more than a year in hospital, during which time she lost her left leg, nine of her fingertips and the toes of her right foot, Lisa spent months in rehab learning to walk, speak and live independently before finally beginning to eventually rebuild her career. This she has done incredibly successfully, winning awards for her writing and contributing to the HuffPost, the Sydney Morning Herald and many others. She's published two books and makes regular appearances on both television and as a public speaker. My favourite quote from Lisa, which I think sums things up, was when she said, yeah, I've got some stuff going on, but I'm pretty grateful to be kicking around. There are far worse things going on in the world and I don't see myself as a victim. I certainly don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. I don't feel sorry for Lisa. I am amazed by her. I really loved this conversation and what I took from it was really, really not to sweat the small stuff because it's just not worth it. Bad things happen to people on a spectrum, but life is what you make of it, and Lisa is such a prime example of that. I started off by wondering aloud what Lisa was up to today in sunny Brisbane, and we kicked off from there. She told me she was off to a meeting for the arts committee that she sits on in Queensland, so I asked her what that involved. Um, I do a lot, I do a lot of work with hospitals around medical-based stuff, And um, I'm a sort of a consumer representative is is the title. So I'll be in a room full of doctors and nurses and they always want at least one person there with some sort of lived experience. So some of the the presentations I do around this as well, I'll, I'll speak at medical conferences and there'll be all sorts of fancy academics there and professionals and um, then there'll be me and I have absolutely no medical training whatsoever. But my point is always that I'm not a doctor, but I want to put into context why all of what you're learning is is important and, you know, how it actually affects the patient from someone with lived experience. So that's a lot of work I do with the hospitals. But today the arts committee is going to be very, very different. It's looking at, as the name suggests, art in the art in the hospital and the influence that has or the impact that has on 
on patience and well-being and all those sorts of things. So very different. Is that the art that's on the walls of the hospital or people doing art in hospitals? Uh, a bit of a bit of both, a bit of everything. I'm only only new to the committee, so I'm yet to find out more about it, but a bit of both and um, doing collaborative efforts with community um, community as well. So we have um, Indigenous art and those sorts of things that we, we put around the hospital as well and try and make it and inclusive and I'll of course be flying the flag for art from disabled people and so it, I suppose so the art reflects the society and, and the culture in which in which everyone's coming from that's a large part of the, the work I do around media diversity as well trying to get our um, our media whether it's um, some sort of pop culture and art or newsrooms to just reflect society better. Yeah, sure. Um, and just going back to what you're saying about the fact you've got no medical training, the first thought that just came into my head was, I bet you know more than loads of doctors. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, you've probably spent more time in hospitals than some of the doctors that work on you from time to time. <laughs> I, I probably have spent more time than some of the newer graduates, but um, I, I certainly don't profess to have any um, formal medical training or anything like that. I'm an expert in my own my own situation and I suppose a lot of people are but um yeah that's sort of where it <laughs> where it ends I suppose. So just as a starting point do you want to just um give us a little um background about what happened to you and and how you ended up with a disability like in terms of what your medical condition is and was just to give a bit of context to that. Well I'll go back to um sort of early 2005 so and to put all of that in context, I was 24, um, living interstate. I'd been to uni, had had two degrees and was working in advertising agencies, won awards, been promoted, so everything was, was going swimmingly. And then I was at Melbourne Airport one morning, and even though I don't remember it, because I've got amnesia from, from everything... I um, had a brain hemorrhage or a stroke and collapsed at the airport and was taken to hospital and put in an induced coma for three weeks and on life support for two months and then spent over a year in hospital um, in total the first time. And during that first year, my left leg, all of my right toes and nine of my fingertips were amputated. I had heart surgery and then came back later um, for a total hip replacement and later again for more heart surgery. And I still go back occasionally for, for surgery as recently as a month ago to um, have something done. So I've got some very visible disabilities. Um, so there's my big wheelchair that you can't miss, um, a prosthetic leg and scars everywhere, um, covered in scars from head to toe. But there are also the invisible disabilities or hidden disabilities from my brain hemorrhage that you can't see. And even though you, you can't see those things, they're not as obvious as my big shiny wheelchair, they play a far greater impact um, on my life. So I'm over 25% blind. My speech has been affected. So I'm haven't had a bottle of wine before our recording. This is just me normally. <laughs> and um, concentration, memory and fatigue are also big factors for me as well. 
And what else is there? Oh, epilepsy and anxiety. That's it. I knew there were some others. I was blown away by how calmly and matter-of-factly Lisa describes her illness and subsequent surgeries and the consequences of those, including the amputation of her leg, her toes, her fingertips, as well as a total hip replacement. Those are big physical consequences, and I can't even begin to imagine the mental consequences that go alongside them. Lisa mentions in a minute that her brain hemorrhage was due to a streptococcal infection and that she had had multiple organ failure as a result. When she said she'd had a stroke, though, in my ignorance, my first thought, I must admit, was, but that just doesn't happen to young, fit people. Lisa was super sporty, and we'll come on to that in a bit. She was 24 years old and just flying in her career was, and whether she'd come across many other young people who had survived a brain hemorrhage like hers. Well, only only since. So I was um, also a bit ignorant to the fact that it happened to young people I suppose and certainly never would have assumed that it would happen to me because I was didn't didn't fit this stereotypical symptoms or lifestyle of a of a stroke victim um so I was relatively relatively healthy and eating all my vegetables and going to the gym most days and um doing all those all those sorts of things non-smoker but still it was a, a rare um, streptococcus A infection that, that caused a stroke and it all sort of snowballed from there and to this day doctors still don't know how I contracted that. It could have been at the shopping centre or, or something um, but in the words of one of my specialists he just said it's bloody bad luck. So it's just it's one of those things that, that happened um, unfortunately and and caused it all to snowball. So just backtracking a little bit before that, you mentioned that you'd been to, to uni and you had a background in, in obviously media and communications. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what you were doing beforehand and your career as it started and how that's impacted on how your career has sure. kind of shaped over the time? Sure. Well, my career is very, very different now, but I, I try to keep similar, similar roots in media and communications. So... Um, I discovered that um, you could actually be a writer and get paid for it and be creative and um, as a copywriter and advertising agencies and just thought that sounded like the best job in the world. So I went to university and studied two degrees in media and communications and then after I left uni, I had had my heart set on becoming a copywriter in advertising agencies So um, and did that did that successfully for quite a few years prior to um, prior to my brain hemorrhage. So I worked interstate and global um, and national brands, some really, really great clients. And to be honest, I absolutely loved my job. There were bad days, of course, like any job. But the fact that I, I got to write and be a bit creative and think outside the box, and I would joke to people that I can't believe I'm this is a job and it's it's the best job in the world apart from apart from bad days so of course everything everything happened and um i was suddenly faced with the fact that well what what exactly do i do now i had always always enjoyed writing but as a writer i essentially lost all the tools of my trade um my eyesight my fingertips and my brain um, my brain was permanently damaged from the stroke. Nine fingertips had been amputated and I was over 25% blind. So 
I would tell people that I still wanted to write and they'd look at me in the hospital bed and sort of say, oh, that's that's nice, dear. Um, so after I left after I left hospital, I still had this this really burning desire to to write somehow, but I had absolutely no way to to physically go about it. I couldn't even hold a pen to write my own name. So I bought the cheapest, dodgiest laptop that I could and just taught myself to write again with um, with my fingertips and as as they were and my eyes and my brain as they were. Um, and I'm a lot slower at the keyboard now, but can put a few words together. You can put a lot of brilliant words together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I know mum used to sit beside me in the hospital bed and write down, be my scribe essentially, and I'd write letters to friends or she'd write them for me and I'd say, dear so-and-so, comma, hope you're having a nice day, full stop. And she'd write it all down for me, go home, type it up and email it to my friends. And that was how I communicated with people. Um, and so the fact that I can I can write now as slow as it may be is is something I'm incredibly grateful for. And I've interviewed interviewed writers about this to make sure it wasn't just me losing the plot, but it's it's just something in you that you can't quite you can't quite shake. And I certainly had all of all of what what you consider the tools of the trade to be taken away, but I still have this this burning desire to write and the um the other thing that I did was after relearning how to speak properly and I've still got um a few a few voice problems because of the stroke, I thought let's let's challenge that and I got into public speaking and started started doing a bit of that as well. So it's been lots and lots of fun speaking with young girls and women predominantly about all sorts of things like body image and self-esteem and confidence and issues like that, which which I'm incredibly passionate um, about sharing with young women because during my time in hospital, I watched more TV than I've ever watched in my life because I couldn't actually get up and leave the bed. <laughs> but there was this one show, um, Queer Eye for the Straight, Guy. Yeah, queer eye for the straight guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, and it was it was coming to Australian screens, and it was it was fairly new, and they kept running promo ads to say four out of five women hate the way they look, four out of five women don't like their bodies, and I just remember watching that over and over again, thinking, my gosh, I was lying there with um you know one leg missing, both arms in plastic because my fingertips had been amputated, um looking absolutely shocking as you can probably imagine and thinking I I don't exactly love my body right now but I don't hate it nearly as much as some of these women these able-bodied women do and it it sort of made no sense to me so it was something I was keen to explore when I left hospital um the fact that that so many so many girls and women just aren't happy with their bodies and themselves. Mm. Like I have read some of the stuff you've written about social media kind of inspiration in inverted commas and the fact that a lot of those sort of health and well wellness and fitness accounts are 
so heavily styled, you know, they create this kind of look of perfection, which just doesn't really exist. And I was just wondering, like, what your thoughts were, come, especially coming out of an advertising background, where obviously everything's very aspirational in advertising, and that's how you sell stuff, isn't it? You know, like, um, of course. what your kind of take on the conflict between those two things is, and particularly with reference to social media. Well, I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post about this, and came at it from from both points of view. Firstly, as someone with an advertising background, I perfectly understand theoretically why brands want to use well-styled images with quote-unquote perfect looking people, all of those sorts of things because it's aspirational. Um, there are, are certain ways that you're not going to present your product and um, so I I perfectly understand that, but at the same time, as both a consumer and a body body positive advocate, and all all of those things, it infuriates me somewhat that I I'm flicking through Instagram and everything just looks the same. One brand um, flows into another, and it's all just a bit vanilla and blah. So again, putting on my my marketing advertising hat. This is an opportunity for brands to be a point of difference, to stand out, to showcase diversity. And as I probably mentioned to you earlier, to have a product that reflects our society. So our our society, our culture, our streets are not made up of size zero, quote unquote, perfect looking people. That's that's not society. And um we, we do need to showcase diversity. 20% of the population have a disability and they also have credit cards, but they're not being being used in, in media generally, both on screen and off screen, behind the scenes. Um, so I'm, I'm working with organisations at the moment to to help improve that situation. So, But just from a purely corporate point of view, companies are you know 20 percent is massive there is a huge chunk of you know from a monetary point of view there's a huge chunk of the market that is out there waiting to be catered for and people are not doing it yeah and that's that's a point I've made before if we don't look at it from a charitable moral or ethical view and just purely look at it from a corporate bottom line view this is a an excellent I hate to say it, money money making. Like if if that's the way the executives want to look at it, they don't want to be charitable and moral and everything like that. It is just a um an excellent marketing opportunity because there's twenty percent of the population out there who aren't necessarily being catered for, but not just that twenty percent. It's also their families and loved ones and colleagues and uh people who generally just want to see see greater diversity. Definitely. And actually that's a great kind of segue into talking about your your new campaign, which is Visibility for Disability. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that and tell us what that is and what are your aims with that? Excellent. Well visibility for disability is a hashtag that I, I started randomly because so so much of social media is is the same same look, same sorts of people, and I thought I'll just start. And it's 
start putting myself out there and hashtag visibility for disability, but not just myself, but other people who who also want to um, showcase not just visible disabilities, but perhaps talk about invisible disabilities. Because as I mentioned before, you don't just have to be in a wheelchair to to have a disability and to use a hashtag visibility for disability. But um, it's something that has been difficult for me growing up without social media and showcasing my life or putting putting my life out there out there for public at the public count to view and also seeing a need for it seeing that Instagram just it's all the same sort of stuff yeah I think that's I, I think it's a great um kind of campaign to be starting and there's another um just talking about Instagram another Instagram account that I really like that's called models of diversity which ah yes that, I think that's a great account Angel Sinclair is the CEO she's like your way I interviewed her for that Huffington Post piece that I was telling ah, you about okay I love the Models of Diversity Instagram account. So have a look at that if you haven't come across it already. It really shows that there is a place for everyone in the fashion industry and on the catwalk. We then rolled back a little bit to when Lisa was in rehab. She had obviously been a really driven person throughout her life, playing sport at a very high level with a great career and a positive outlook. I asked her how she started to climb the new mountains that had presented themselves on her path and how she started to get back in the game as her recovery continued. Okay, well, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that there were plenty of, of bad days and failures. I didn't come out of hospital and say, it's all sunshine and roses and excellent. I'm going to write a book and be a speaker, and it's awesome. So, um, and I certainly didn't do this by myself. I've been very, very grateful to have an incredible family around me and um, some wonderful medical staff as well who have who have helped me. So it is also my disability is a permanent. There are certain things like chronic pain or peripheral neuropathy, which is with me every single day. Um, so it's certainly not a case of you know, 13 years ago, I was cured or fixed or, or anything like that. It is it is ongoing and um, things like mental health, things that you have to stay on top of permanently. But I think a lot of it um, in terms of getting, getting back on the horse, for want of a better word or better phrase, um, came from my, my training um, in, in sport. You mentioned earlier that I um, played a lot of sport and – just use volleyball as an example. When I first started playing volleyball, I was so bad. I was terrible. I was this lanky little weak thing running around the court, couldn't couldn't do much of anything. But I just practiced and practiced and practiced and failed a lot, plenty of times, and learned from each of those experiences. And um, years later, I was captaining the Queensland team at the national titles and training with the Australian squad a little bit later. So, But that had only come um, out of a, a lot of time and a lot of practice and a lot of failures and just going, okay, failure is not a bad thing. It's just something I can learn from and, and keep going. And I'd done that numerous times in terms of being really bad at something and just kept practicing and eventually with time – improved um and so I just applied those same principles to my rehab and thought well I'm pretty weak at the moment and pretty useless because I, I couldn't move much of anything 
Um, but I started really, really small. So I had to learn how to do everything for myself again, brush my teeth, dress myself, roll myself over in bed, everything. Um, and each time I did something um, for the first time, I'd, I'd celebrate those little wins but not rest on my laurels and then go, okay, now I've, I've just brushed my teeth for the first time. You know, I've just fed myself for the first time. What's what's my next goal? So I suppose I've always been fairly goal-orientated from a, from a very young age with sport. So, and that was some advice that was given to me um, in hospital as well as to to continue to be goal orientated. So I, I focused on the really, really tiny little goals and was always extremely grateful for those that I had I had managed to accomplish as, as small as they may have been, like brushing my teeth or something like that. So I still still do that today with my, you know, to-do list of this deadline and that deadline and I've got to fit in the gym and dinner and all, all sorts of things, but same principles, different, different situation. Setting goals is something I've got really into recently, actually. It doesn't matter what your situation is. Setting small, manageable goals on a regular basis and checking in with how you're doing with them is really useful. It also helps you to see how far you've come when you look back over a period of time. We'd mentioned previously that Lisa has played a lot of sport, and I asked her whether that was still a big part of her life. I'm not involved in competitive team sports, but doing some sort of fitness or movement is really, really crucial for me. It's something I've always, always done and it's so important for my mental health, keeping that in check. And just the other week I had a cold, I think I told you about, and I couldn't go to the gym and I was miserable. (laughs) (laughs) I was so cranky and my my husband knows if I haven't been to the gym in a little while, he's like, get get yourself, (laughs) get yourself outside or or something like that. So my I, I often joke that my apartment is set up like a a bad gym or a nursing home because there are there are walking frames and um gym equipment all throughout my apartment. But I also am fortunate enough to live very, very close to a gym. So that was one of my criteria ironically when I was finding somewhere to live was that I wanted that independence to get myself to the gym. Because going there most days um, is is really important for me, for my physical and mental health. So I'm not training to be in the Paralympics or to walk again or anything like that. But it's just maintaining that mobility so that I can um, get myself up off the couch or something like that and travel with my husband and not not be in pain or, or anything like that. Mm, sure. And over here, you know, since we had the London 2012 Olympics, I think there has been a lot more awareness about disability sports, certainly in the UK and mm-hmm. um, the Invictus Games. Has, I know you've just had that recently yes. in Australia, haven't you? We and, did, yes. Yeah. And have you noticed a change in the last 13 years about people's awareness about disability sport in general? Yes, I think so. We had the Commonwealth Games over here as well, and there was certainly a big, um, a big, big focus on that. And Kurt Fernley is one of the really well-recognised Paralympians, um, disabled athletes over here, 
and he's he's certainly done a lot to promote wheelchair sports and disability sports and all of those sorts of things. But yes, there's there's been a lot more awareness, but we certainly certainly have a, a way to go. And I think not just with disability sports, but with the inclusion of disability, it's not just about making a quote-unquote special event for disability or, or something like that, but it's making it inclusive of of disability as just it, it can't be done with everything, obviously, but that that goes across the board, not just with sports, but with with all all sorts of things in popular culture. Yeah, I was amazed to read where you'd written about um going to give an interview in a major television, uh, you know, a really major television studio that didn't have disabled access. That was that was kind of shocking to me when I read that recently that you'd written. That's correct. That was a a piece I wrote about the fact that um, we we sometimes forget about disability and the diversity debate. So um, I'd been to a conference for media professionals and I was there in my own right, had paid for my, my own ticket and there were 250 attendees but I was the only one there with a visible disability and nobody quite knew what to do with me. No one would talk to me. No and it shocked me somewhat because these were all journalists with a communications background, but they couldn't communicate with me. And it it was a little bit a little bit disappointing because these are the women who are it was a women's conference as well. These are the people who suppo- who are supposed to be representing or are writing on behalf of the disability community, but they didn't quite know how to engage with me as a visibly disabled person. So um, I'd also seen a lot of commentary about we need more diversity in the media, we need more diversity, and it was always focused on cultural diversity or gender diversity, and both of those are extremely important issues that need to be addressed, no doubt about that. But disability didn't didn't get a mention, rarely got a mention, and... <clears throat> I'd also noticed this in other areas of popular culture. So I was interviewing designers at a red carpet event and they were all talking about diversity on the catwalk and how proud they were of getting diversity on the catwalk. And I thought, oh, great, this, this will be excellent. And I watched the show and it was it was only about size diversity and colour diversity, Gender, diverse, uh, gender diversity and ethnicity. And again, both of those extremely important issues and really, really happy to see them there. But disability is often forgotten in the diversity diversity debate, unfortunately. Mm. And actually, it would just be great to see, you know, it, where it doesn't have to be a big deal that there is somebody with a disability, whatever that may be, involved in something like that. It's not that somebody's a token or that they're there because got you know they're making up numbers or whatever you know it's just that actually that becomes normal. I wouldn't agree with you more. I've I've spoke to a journalist about that recently and said that I was I was doing a runway show and I think I was the only disabled person there and I realised that maybe that was a big deal right now but I wish it wasn't. Mm. I wish it wasn't such a big deal that um, there were were disabled people involved in in these things because as I've as I've said before and I'll keep saying it's that's society that's what our our community and our culture looks like Mm. 
So you've done a little bit of modeling, you mentioned to me. Was that, had you done some before your illness or was this all since? Or can you tell me a little bit about that, Lisa, as well? Sure. I'd done some before my illness. So when I was at university and when I was working full-time in advertising, it was just a, a side a side thing, I suppose. It's something I never took particularly seriously. <laughs> and good way, good way to pay the, off the student debts. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, I, I certainly didn't spend four years at university to become a model. So I started doing again. Went back to doing little bits and pieces here and there. I have been for for several years um, for different brands and things. But recently was asked to be in a catwalk show and this weekend um, in another one. So I would love to see to see more people with disabilities doing this sort of thing and being included in this sort of thing. But until that happens, um, I'll I'll continue to do little bits and pieces where I can. And you've written a couple of books previously. You've got so many skills and talents, honestly. <laughs> um, and obviously you've got your, your writing and your speaking. Have you got anything else exciting coming up in the pipeline? Well, I have this catwalk show this weekend. Okay, cool. And it's it should be a lot of fun. Um, I've also, let me see, my husband and I have always got, got travel plans to somewhere. But I'm um, trying to work out the next place to go. We're trying to decide on the, the best place with, with access because that's always our number one criteria um, when we travel is, is access. So if you have any hot tips. So there's a call out. If you've got any advice about great destinations with accessibility, then do let us know via social media. Lisa went on to tell me about her next project, which sounds pretty exciting too. I'm doing some doing some work at the moment with um, an organisation here around the language that we use to in newsrooms um, to represent disability. Okay, so um, part of that is combining a, a lot of what I'm doing is combining my um, previous experience with media, my professional background, even though I, I still do bits and pieces now, with my acquired disabilities and putting those two together to create some change. So I've had a lot of trouble finding people here in Australia who have both um, a professional media background um, with real world experience also having um, a disability. So I've had to go overseas and um, find some journalists and people over there, but it's it's been really good to, um, I suppose, be able to help help create some change and help help journalists in some way because so often that people, not, not just journalists, but people are looking for the right words, the right way to say things and the right things to do. And I know that having having been on the other side of the coin as someone without a disability for 24 years, so being able to combine those skills is is something that I'm, I'm finding really useful. I always put my foot in my mouth and say the wrong things and probably oh always have, but just <laughs> <laughs> helping... Um, Helping professionals to find news professionals to find those those right words and collaborating with other 
of the disabled people and of the journalists as well because there's not necessarily just one way to do things. We had a laugh there about sticking your foot in your mouth. But as someone who often does say the wrong thing and is therefore quite careful about the language I use around disability, race, gender and ethnicity, I think this will be a really useful resource. Improving the use of language around disability is vital in increasing exposure. And Lisa is clearly on the right track with journalists there. She and I then wandered off a little bit into chatting about self-care, gratitude, looking after yourself and other things that perhaps sound a little bit like a motivational Instagram post, but are gaining traction in their capacity to establish a pattern and purpose in life. Do you have a morning routine, for example? Like, is that part of your, is that part of your life? I do have a morning routine and it involves coffee, (laughs) so because... Lots of coffee. Um, because of my, my sleep disorder that I acquired with my, my brain injury, I have to be really particular about um my times of my times of sleep and um regular patterns and those sorts of things. So I generally get up at about five or six every morning. Um and then there's a bunch of medications I have to take and, and things I have to do and I I try to to move, um, move or go to the gym or, or do something something like that each morning. Um, answer some answer some emails and get into work. And I I do try. I know they say it's bad to be on email and do work first thing in the morning, but I try to do things first up in the morning because by the afternoon my fatigue is so bad that I'm I'm fairly useless to work really. So I do try to do as much as I can work-wise in the mornings um, and sometimes leave leave the afternoons for more mundane tasks. And just going back to gratitudes, like is that something that has become, um, you know, affirmations and gratitudes, is that something that you tie into your daily routine now as well? Always. It's it's and when I say always, it's not just something that appeared to me as an epiphany when I was in hospital, but growing up, it was something that um, my father particularly instilled in me that you know my modest middle class upbringing was something I should be grateful for because there were plenty of people who didn't didn't have that, and I travelled to some um, third world countries and saw some devastating poverty before my disability and so always had this awareness that um, I had a a certain level of privilege even though I was you know a modest middle class um, suburban upbringing um, was always always very grateful for for the little things that I had but of course that was just taken to a, a new level when I was in hospital I remember one day um being in an awful amount of pain and I was on a lot of painkillers and my father said to me, if, you know, if you're in another country right now, you wouldn't have painkillers, This that would be it. And um, I was incredibly grateful for the fact, just I, I found that was one of my coping mechanisms was to find gratitude in the really, really small things, as, I, as I'd done a lot previously. You can always rely on your dad for a healthy dose of reality, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was, oh, that is like, that. He, 
it was great. And mum, mum and my sister and brother were the same as well. But um, just even air conditioning in the hospital. And I used to joke with people when they came in, sweating and just, oh, the heat. The heat here in Brisbane gets pretty bad during summer. I'm like, hey, it's, it's awesome <laughs> in here. It's great. No worries. Um, the fact that I got coffee in the mornings, even though it was shitty instant coffee. It's still a coffee. Sorry, my lad's it's, still a, it's still caffeine. It's still a coffee. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, really nothing nothing special at all. Um, and the fact that I was getting three meals a day, even though they were, you know, hospital food and a public hospital and, and weren't five-star Michelin gourmet meals, I was still getting fed. What was what was there to bitch and moan about? Um, there were people two floors up from me or in the next ward who weren't going to be going home um, and had just been given terrible news that their their condition was terminal. And I was pretty pretty grateful for the fact that I would one day be going home, even though it would be in a very different body to a very different life. It was still was still something I found enormous gratitude in. Some of the work I do now with girls and women around body confidence and things is appreciating our bodies for what they can do rather than what they look like in a pair of skinny jeans. Um, each each and every little system that, that works to keep us moving in, in some way, being grateful for that and focusing on what it is doing. My, my legs are, are walking me from A to B without without any problems, without any pain, instead of focusing on the, the bad, the, the cellulite, whatever the problem may be, there's always situations in life where we can choose to focus on the positive or focus on the negative. And it's a habit that's just got to be a habit you have to form over time and reinforce over time as well. It's not like one day you wake up and go, oh, I'm just going to be positive forever. It's something that has to be continually reinforced. Well, I can tell that you're you, you've you've been doing a lot of uh, positive reinforcement of your positivity, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it takes it does take time and it takes effort to to do that positive reinforcement to yourself to say, you know, you're okay. Just as a final thing, if people are interested in your work, where is the best place for them to find you? What are your links and plugs and handles, and where are you on the web? The best place would be on Instagram. It's probably where I do most of most of my work. Um, at lisacox.co, L-I-S-A-C-O-X.co. And that's where I I upload posts every every few days and yeah, try to try to spread all the messages that I've talked to you about. Cool. That's really cool. Well I'll link to your website from the show page and all of your social media links will be there as well. So people can head over there and check out Lisa's work. Okay. I tend to stay off Twitter. Everyone's just too mean. Angry <laughs> and mean and they just shout at each other continually <laughs> and I I just don't see the point. No, and there's there's not enough pretty pictures on Twitter either. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, again, part of the visibility for disability is just um, showing disability in a a way that's not not a way that we usually see disability portrayed um, in the media, which is in a hospital ward or even though I spend a lot of time in hospital wards, um, myself and all the disabled people I know spend plenty of time 
out and about in public, just doing everyday normal things, getting coffee at the pub, at the beach, wherever it may be, um, at the shopping centre, you name it, but showcasing that diversity of we're just normal people getting on with our lives, doing everyday things, while the media continues uh, to churn out these really stereotypical, narrow views of what disability should look like. If we all strive for an environment where representation of disability is encouraged in every sphere of society, things may start to change and the inclusion of disabled people on TV, in the media, on the catwalk, in sport, in the workplace and in life will no longer be a big deal. Just because people have a disability doesn't mean that they don't have the same money worries or laughter at stupid jokes or love life disasters and career disappointments as able-bodied people. Lisa is working really hard on this, so I would urge you to support her and others in any way that you can. That's all for this week, so thanks for joining us. We're having a little break next week as I am out of here on my honeymoon, only 18 months late, but never mind. Uh, But we'll be back in a fortnight with the extremely hilarious and very cool Laura Bartlett of House of Coco. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time.